Now, let me just, I want to read a scripture to you real quick from Matthew 18.3. It says this, it says, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. This morning we're going to start with this, and I just want to take a little time to talk to you about children. Jesus thought it was important enough to say this, that we must become like them to enter the kingdom of heaven, and I don't know about you, but that's really my goal, the, the end game for me is, is heaven someday. And, and as we talk about that, we're just going to talk about kids children to start off with. Now, some of you have your kids with you. We have suspended activities upstairs, so you're privileged to sit beside them. Some of you, you're like, yes, I'm so privileged to sit beside my seven-year-old today. Thank you so much. But I have a three-year-old, and life is always an adventure. Her name is Riley, and uh, she is a daddy's girl, to say the least. So I know a little bit about children. Each and every day is a new lesson that they're teaching me. And the lesson that I want to talk to you today is about grace, and children seem very well proficient and skilled in this area. For the month of November, many of you may have seen guys walking around with extra hair on their face. The month of November is, as they call it, no-shave November. Now, ladies, some of you partook in that. It was supposed to be for men, but for November, uh, they let you, you grow out your facial hair. Some say it's to support cancer awareness. My dad was diagnosed diagnosed with prostate cancer this last year, so I figured, you know what, why not? I've had the same face for 28 years, let's dress it up or mess it up a little bit. So I I let my hair grow for the entire month of November. I was pretty shaggy. It it was gross. Um, My my facial hair is bright red. It's very unique to people who see me, and they commented about that quite often. So I endured a month of having that facial hair, and I said, you know what, Everybody's had fun at my expense. I'm just going to have some fun. So I shaved it down to a very ugly mustache and a little patch of hair underneath my chin or underneath my lips. Now, truthfully, I never did it to make a fashion statement. I never did it thinking, man, I'm really improving the way I look. Wow, check me out. I never did that. I did it for the simple fact of youthful ignorance. I thought, why not? Let's do it. And I remember I I had shaved it down one night, and of course my wife was begging me to go ahead and just remove all of it. Um, She was not pleased with how it looked. But I decided to keep it. I was going out of town, so I decided to leave it for a a few days at least. And I remember walking back into the living room the next day, and my three-year-old was standing there. She looked at me, and she looked at this mustache, which I'll show you a picture of it so you can see what she saw. (laughs) That's not what she did, but... She looked at me and she said, Dad, that's disgusting. What do you have on your face? Shave it off. And I I looked at her and I thought, oh, who raised this little girl? I was prepared for the people who had said the things and the adults because I knew it would be fun. But the truthfulness of my three-year-old daughter always surprises me. It's the way it is with kids, isn't it? The younger they are, the more transparent they are. They love you, yet they're truthful. I never questioned whether or not she was trying to hurt my feelings. I understood that that was her actual response to the rat's nest on my face. There's an innocence and purity to children. There's a grace that they offer and a love that they share that I still, as the parent of a three-year-old, I can't fully come to comprehend why I've been so blessed to share the love that, that she has for me. But the honesty with the love, it's a powerful combination. If you want the truth, I challenge you to do this. Throw out your bathroom window mirror, 
have a child standing in your bathroom every morning when you walk in there and ask them how they look, how you look when you start your day. Let them smell your breath and ask them how your breath smells. They know how to tell the truth. They know how to tell the truth in love in such a way that even though they look at you and tell you that you're disgusting, you can't help but to love them. My daughter, I said earlier that she's three years old. She, uh, this is not a sermon about her, although I could turn it into one, but she often runs into our room in the middle of the night and, and she has a way of crawling up in bed and of course as the responsible parents we are who should take her back to bed, we let her sleep in the bed because we're too lazy to take her to her own room. So usually it's a tug of war between my wife and myself to figure out who we can turn the legs towards to see who kidneys and stomach is going to be bruised the most the next day. And I remember as we were laying there and, and I had my back turned to her because I was protecting myself so I didn't, you know, didn't get the air kicked out of me or, or even worse as she was laying there. I, I remember I rolled back over and there's this weird thing that happens when you roll over and there's the face of a child half an inch from your face. It's one of those abrupt like, whoa. And I remember I was there and I said, whoa, Riley, I didn't know that you had come in here. And I closed my eyes and I tried to go back to sleep. About 15 seconds later, I was awoken by a slap to the side of the head. Not by my wife this time, but by my daughter. She looked at me in the face and she said, Dad, roll over. Your breath is terrible. She hasn't learned to be as politically correct as we have as adults, and there's something about children that I love. I love being able to be a parent. I love what's exhibited, and and I believe that Jesus understood what it meant to be as a child. There is such a grace that is offered. There is a love. They're not malicious. They don't intend to hurt hurt you. It's not one of those things. We know that none of our kids are perfect. We're all imperfect people, but but yet they still love you, and they care about you, and I, I love that thing that I've learned as I grow older is, and, and the more ministry I do and the more interaction with people I do, I understand that we are all a part of a process. We're all in this process together, and, and some of us are moving towards what God wants us to do, and some of us have decided that we would do what we want to do, do it our own way. This morning, if you have a Bible app, you can open that up. I actually have the notes in there so you can follow along. My students love it. It's in the U version. It's on the Android and iPhone. But as we really dig in today, I just want to bring some challenges to you as you end 2012 and you start 2013. It's been said many times that hurting people hurt people. But I, I want to take it a step further and say that people hurt people. Sometimes people hurt us who are not even hurting or people that maybe we have not hurt. Mom, dad, have you been in a situation where your kids have utterly crippled you? Husband, wife, have you been in a situation where something has happened and you've been hurt? Maybe you have a friend. Maybe you're simply breathing. And you know what it means to interact with other imperfect people. People hurt each other. We never truly grow out of our capacity and our human nature to want someone else's toys. The toys grow bigger. They take on different shapes and maybe different faces and maybe different places. But 
we want their possessions or we want their happiness, we want their lives, our, our greed that we have as people seems to never be enough. And if we aren't careful, we become a prisoner to other people. It's not that way with kids. As I looked at my daughter and I began to drive, I was driving and I, I looked at her and I thought, you know what? She doesn't know what it means to be intentionally hurt by another person. She doesn't know what it means in her feelings to be hurt because someone doesn't like her. She doesn't know how bad it hurts for people to say things that they shouldn't say. She doesn't know the pain that people will inflict on her. And I thought in that moment of how much I wanted to protect her and what I would do to someone who actually did hurt her. And then I became quite aware of how and what I would give so that I could be like her. And be able to go through life dealing with imperfect people and still smiling and loving and showing grace. We begin with grace first part of our life and we spend the rest of our life trying to get back to that point as a little child. When our dreams weren't shattered, our hearts weren't broken, our lives weren't where they, where they are, we, we spend our whole life trying to get back to that innocence in its purest form because we are imperfect people. And until we understand who we are, we can never understand or appreciate the gift of grace that God has given us. By our very nature, we're rebels. We're bound by our past, our pride, our poor choices. But at the moment where we thought that we were given over to our own ways, our own devices, our own fate, God's response was to send his son. God's response to imperfect people was to send Jesus, his perfect son. I'm not telling you anything today that you probably haven't heard or that you may not, okay, yeah, that, oh yeah, that makes sense. But what I am asking you to do is to dive deep into the grace of God so that when you come out, refreshed by what grace means, you live a life that lets other people see a perfect Savior in an imperfect world. Romans 3, verses 24 and 25, it says this. It says that God, in his gracious kindness, declared us not guilty. He has done this through Christ Jesus, who has freed us by taking away our sins. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. We were made right with God when we believed that Jesus shed his blood, sacrificing his life for us. Several times in my life that I can really think of when this really meant something to me besides words on a page. First time that this really jumped out and instilled itself and embedded itself in, its, in my heart was when I was in college. When I was in college, I was PhD, I was majoring, I had a PhD in poor decisions. Seemed like the only thing I knew to do well was to do bad and I remember making poor decision after poor decision and thinking, man, I'm really starting to figure out what not to do. And I remember enclosing myself in a prison of guilt and shame and sorrow for what I've done, of loneliness because of the people that I had isolated myself from, because of the God that I distanced myself from. And I remember being in my dorm room and thinking, man, if this is what life is, then it's going to be a fun rest of it. And I remember at that moment that I looked at God and said, God, I need your grace. I know what I've done. I know who I've been. I know the decisions that I've made. But God, I need your grace 
to even be able to make it through tomorrow. God, I'm not needing your grace to just supply and cover what I've done in my past, but I need your grace to even be able to wake up and look myself in the mirror tomorrow. And I remember him flooding into my life, and just when I thought that the prison door would slam shut and I would be left to my own fate, God set stepped into my world and into my life, opened the prison door, presented Jesus to me, said, you're free to go. He's taken it for you. Each and every one of us have been set free. And we're left wondering, in the aftermath of grace, what do I do now? What do I do now? I know I'm forgiven. I, I know that those things have happened. Maybe grace has washed over you. What does that mean? How can my life be different because of it? This last week, uh, we received a gift card to Cinemark to go watch movies, and I, I decided that I've been wanting to see Les Mis, Les Miserables. I know it's a musical, but I decided I was going to go, and, and let me just tell you guys, if your wife asks you to go, you can endure two and a half hours of musical for your wife being able to be excited about you going to see a movie with her. The reward is worth the risk that you take of being bored out of your mind. I, I love the movie. I'd read the book when I was in high school. I remember watching it, and, and we went to watch Les Mis, and, and maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, but the main story character is a guy named Jean Valjean. Now, Jean has been in prison for 19 years. He is what they would consider a hardened criminal, but you find out that the reason he was even, even sent to prison in France was because he stole a loaf of bread because one of his family members was hungry. He stole a, a piece of bread to feed a starving child, and he was put in prison for it. And so he spent 19 years in hard labor. And he's finally paroled. You, you see the scene. He, he's paroled. He's able to go free. He has his freedom. But because of what he's done, there's a black mark on him. He has parole papers. He has to present those. And so he begins walking through the countryside. It's freezing cold. He goes up to place after place, and they deny him the ability to stay because it says that he's a dangerous criminal. And so because they deny him, he has no place to go, and he finally arrives at the house of a bishop. He arrives at, at a church, and as he's there, he, the bishop comes outside, greets him, invites him in, and not only does he invite him in, he allows him to sit at the table. He has expensive silverware. He has it beautifully done up. It's in silver. It's just a beautiful place. He's finally able to eat, and as he eats, he eats ravenously because of the hunger that he has. So the bishop kindly agrees to let him stay the night as he has no place to go. And, and as Jean Valjean is laying in his bed that night, the temptation becomes too strong for him. He's seen the pretty things that were there as he ate, and, and the temptation becomes overwhelming. And so he sneaks in the middle of the night and grabs the silverware, the, sterling, or the silverware that was there, and, and he takes it and he runs off in the middle of the night. The bishop awakes the next morning to the police there, and they have Jean Valjean, and you can tell that they've beaten him. They know that he's stolen it. He's not capable of having such fine things after he's just been released. They know that, that he has stolen from the bishop, and so they bring him before the bishop, and they say, Bishop, we caught this man. He had your silverware. We know it belongs to you. He is guilty. And as Jean Valjean sits there, he knows what awaits him. For stealing a loaf of bread, it was 19 years. For committing theft again, since he has already been on parole, 
it will mean life in prison. He will never again be able to be a free man. And he sits there before the bishop and, and the police officers. They, they say, look, he's told us that you gave him this silver. We know that you didn't give him the silver, so say the word. We'll take him. Sorry for your inconvenience. And the, and the bishop looks at Jean Valjean and he says, Why, Jean, you've forgotten the silver candlesticks. You've forgotten the best. Here, let me get that for you. And he grabs the candlesticks and he puts it in his bag. And he says, let this man go free. And Jean stands, sits there trying to comprehend what that just means of, of the grace that has just been over, overthrown him, that has overflowed in his life, just the grace, that, the compassion that the, the bishop felt. And, and as he sits there and the cops leave, he's overcome with emotion. And this is what the bishop says to him. He says, John, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. I've bought your soul from you. I take it back from evil thoughts and deeds and the spirit of hell, and I give it to God. Kind of reminds me of what Paul wrote. I'm no longer my own, but I was bought with a price. Take captive every thought. Valjean knew who he was. He knew who he had been. Now he knew he had a place to go. Last part of the story, he ends up adopting a child and he spends the rest of his life to repay the grace that he had been shown. You and I are living in the same aftermath. Maybe it hasn't been so clearly presented to you or maybe you don't understand the depth of what God did by sending his son into the world to take the penalty for your sins, but there is a grace aftermath that we get to walk in today because he loves us. I don't want you to think that I'm condoning sin or that I'm saying it's okay and grace just allows you to do what you want to do. It's not what Jesus said at all. In fact, God didn't overlook your sins lest he endorse them. He didn't punish you for them lest he destroy you. Instead, he found a way to punish the sin and preserve the sinner. Jesus took your punishment and God gave you credit for Jesus' perfection. As I sing those words, oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. Oh, the blood of Jesus shed for me. What a sacrifice that saved my life. I'm standing in an overflow of the grace and the abundance of God today because he saw me where I was and loved me too much to leave me there. You yourself sit here this morning as a product of grace. But we were not meant to just be receptors of the grace. We're also meant to be transmitters. So here's my challenge to you this morning. My challenge for you this morning is that you would grow up in your grace. I understand. You're an adult. You've seen life. The thing I love about teenagers is that they don't pretend to have it all figured out. Some of us as adults, as we get older, we bear the scars of people who have hurt us and we become so jaded and we become so critical of other people that we can't ourselves extend or receive grace because people have boxed us in and people have hurt us. A lot of us have still in the mode of saying, well, life's not fair. 
I agree. Life does not seem fair. As a young child, I remember from the time of I was old enough to, to say it till I was in my teenage years of looking at my dad and saying, Dad, life is not fair. When people hurt me, when I didn't make the starting team, whenever I thought I was doing better than other people thought, or, or whenever someone would say something that would hurt my feelings, I, I remember going home and I would be frustrated and overcome with emotion. I'd be like, life's not fair. My dad would simply look at me and he would say, I've been to a fair once. I said, Dad, you don't understand. My dad was 40 years older than me when I was born. My dad has seen a lot of life. My dad did understand. It's not fair. We understand that. People hurt people. It happens in life, and as much as we would like to protect ourselves, we can't. I love what the scripture says in Isaiah 53, 6, which calls us to grow up in our grow up in grace. It says this, it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. We've all done that at some point or another. But I'm not here today to talk to you about the actions of others and how they've hurt you and, and how wrong they are for doing what they've done. I've come to talk to you today about how you respond to imperfect people. You can't dictate what other people say. You can't dictate what other people do. You can't dictate how other people respond. You can't dictate who will hurt you in this life by distancing you from every person you can. All you can dictate is your response to the imperfect people that God has placed in your life. And my challenge to you is to grow up in your grace. I read this story, and I want to share it with you this morning. It's a It's about a U.S. soldier who's in Afghanistan. I thank God for the troops who are serving and protecting our country. This troop member received a Dear John letter. Now, in case you don't know what a Dear John letter is, it's a generic term, which simply means that a girlfriend or a spouse or a fiancé written a letter and says, I I don't want to be with you anymore. While they're on the battlefield or they're away, they're separated by military duty, so it's considered a Dear John letter. It's a breakup letter, and she sent him this letter. Of course, he was devastated. To add insult to injury, his girlfriend wrote, Please return my favorite picture of myself because I would like to use that photograph for my engagement picture in the newspaper. Oh, you want your picture back, all right? You're already thinking. You're plotting. I can see it. You're like, ooh, let somebody do that to me. Thankfully, most of you are probably already married, so you don't have to worry about a Dear John letter. But this is what his buddies did. They came to his defense. They went throughout the barracks. They collected pictures of all the other soldiers' girlfriends. They filled an entire shoebox. The soldier then mailed the photos to his ex-girlfriend with this note. Please sort through the enclosed pictures and return the rest. For the life of me, I can't remember which one you were. Retaliation is normal. I think he did pretty well. It's a natural human response to hurt, to pain, to betrayal. We all understand it. It's not the response that Jesus modeled for us. Richard Rohr has a quote, and he says, If you do not transform your pain, you will surely transmit it. 
if you continue to move forward into 2013, responding the way that you have in 2012, if you continue to respond as people normally would, then you haven't enabled grace to do the most purifying, cleansing work that God wants to in your heart. This is the way that Jesus responded. Isaiah 53, it goes on in verse 7 through 9 to tell us how he responded to the hurt of people. It says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The biblical model of how to respond when people hurt us is not a retaliation, but a response of grace. So what is your response to grace this morning? Who has God placed in your life, and what are the people in your life that maybe need to experience the grace of God that's going to flow through your life in this coming year? What response will you have, or maybe it's you personally, that you need to accept the grace that God offers so freely and so mercifully to each and every one of us, no matter what we've done or how we've responded to the pains of life? I have three applications this morning that I want to challenge you with as our response to grace. The first one is this. Don't seek forgiveness from people. Rather, give it. If you don't learn this important lesson that even though people should and by all rights you think that they have to forgive you, if you continue to seek for someone to forgive you, you will hold yourself hostage to where God wants you to be in this coming year. If you continue to say, well, God, they won't forgive me, instead of being preemptive and saying, God, I forgive them, even if they don't know what they've done. God, I forgive them even when I shouldn't. God, I extend grace to them even if they don't deserve it. God, I give it to them as freely as you've given it to me. If you continue to look for people to bring grace to you and forgiveness to you, it may never happen. And you may spend the rest of your life frustrated, tired, and overwhelmed. Second thing is this, is don't give forgiveness to God. Receive it. God doesn't need you to tell him you're sorry for how he's treated you. God doesn't need you to apologize for acting the way that you've acted for, because you think he did something to you. When we begin to do this and we, we, we twist what grace means and we say, well, God, I, I forgive you for what you've done to me in my life, we never understand what grace truly is. Grace is that while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. That's grace. Jesus is not punishing you for serving him. Jesus is not punishing you because that's who he is. He's rewarding you eternal life because that's who he is. Receive it. Know that he loves you in spite of what you've done, in spite of who you've been. He loves you. 
The things you've done do not surprise him. He doesn't stand around going, man, I can't believe they really did that this week. He understands that we're imperfect people. He's figured us out. He knows you. He accepts you and he loves you and he calls you with open arms to receive the grace that he offers. Third thing is this, and this admittedly is one of the toughest even for me. Permit imperfections and point them to Jesus. Permit imperfection in people's lives, but point them to Jesus. And this again, I'm not condoning sin. I'm not saying it's okay to sin. The Bible is very clear about sin. Those who know what to do and don't do it to them it is sin. We know that the wages of sin are death. I understand all of that. But what I am saying is that we need to allow people to be people and point them to a Jesus who can change them. And just because you don't like them does not mean that Jesus did not die for them. Church growth happens when the church grows up and invites people who need Jesus to the place where they can meet Jesus. Even people you don't like. What is your response to grace? The last eight years I've been walking in a grace and I'm not perfect. There's times when I know that I miss it and every time I'm reminded of the grace of God just like by hearing, oh, the blood and I I know that Jesus knows where I am and I know that he cares about me and he knew that I was going to hear that song this morning and be reaffirmed of his love and his attention and his affection for me. In the very same way, Christ wants to personally walk into your life this morning and unveil a level of grace that will lead you to live a transformed life in 2013. Grace has already been shown. Now what will you do? 2 Corinthians 12 says this. It says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. As the worship team comes today, I told you earlier, I I don't personally know all of you. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know how your holidays have been. I, I don't know. But I know that you deal with people, and when you deal with people, there's pain, there's hurt, there's betrayal. There's things that happen that cause us to step away from the very people that God has placed in our lives. And my challenge to you this morning is not to shrink back from the people that are imperfect in your life, but that you would confront them with the love of Jesus Christ. And that grace would sweep into their lives as it did into mine. And a Savior who loved me in spite of my bad decisions, and a Savior who cared about me in spite of my mistakes, and a Savior who called me to proclaim his word even though I was unworthy, gave his son as a ransom. So that today I can stand and proclaim a grace that is big enough for wherever you are and whatever you've done. Undeservedly, unashamedly, I stand here before you in the basket of a grace that I still don't completely comprehend, but I want to be able to let others know about. The gracious God who stepped into this place this morning to remind you of grace and his gentle voice. Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, I just have a couple of questions for you. Are you struggling to accept the grace of God? Maybe you walked in dirty, maybe you walked in with guilt and shame of things that you've done? Are are you struggling to accept the grace of God? If that's you this morning, would you just raise your hand? Pastor, I'm I'm struggling. Put your hands down. 
Maybe today you would say, Pastor, extend in grace. People have hurt me. They've done things that they shouldn't do. I have every right to not extend grace. But this morning, I want to begin to walk in the gift of grace. If that's you, I just want you to lift your hand up. There's a God who is in this place that's big enough for your specific circumstance. It's big enough for what you're facing. It's big enough for your cares, for your concerns, for your unforgiveness. Not only meet you in this place, but he will go with you. He will keep you. Because that's who God is. Don't let your thoughts toward God be based upon other people's reaction to life. Choose this day to walk in the gift of grace. Let me pray for you this morning. That God would help you as you walk this out. It's never easy, but it's what we are called to do as Christ followers. And I just want to say a prayer of blessing upon you. Strength and encouragement for wherever you are in this process of life, whatever people you are surrounded with, that God would give you the grace and the strength to be who he's called you to be for the people that are around you. God, I just thank you this morning for who you are. God, I I thank you that you love imperfect people. Father, I, I thank you that your grace and your mercies are new every day. And God, while we can't claim to understand or comprehend the depths of your love, God, we rest in your grace this morning. God, we thank you that you have sustained us until this day. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the possibilities of the people around us. No matter how imperfect they may be, no matter how much they may have hurt us or inflicted pain upon them, God, I pray that the presence of your son in our lives would compel us to go after those that you care about. God, that you would help us to function not only in receiving the grace and understanding how much you care about us, but in extending that to those who need it the most. God, you searched out the least of these, and I pray that you would help us as a church, as a people, individually, God, that you would help me to love those that you have placed before me. God, I thank you that you watch over us, that you care for us, our every step you know, and God, I pray that as we leave this place this morning, God, that you would just continue to speak to our hearts. God, that there would be a river of grace that would flow from us to those around us, God. God, a supernatural gift of grace that when others see it, they will know that it could only be because of you and your son. God, we give you the glory and the praise this morning for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, thank you so much for the opportunity to share with you this morning. Next week, we will have the opportunity to hear from Bob Goff. Maybe you haven't heard about him, maybe you haven't had a chance to see him, but I can personally tell you that he's one of those people that inspire me. It will be an exciting time if you bring your friends, your co-workers. When they see him, it's very evident what God is doing in his life. And I believe that whether or not they know Jesus or don't know Jesus, it will be a blessing to them. So I challenge you, bring your friends next week. Bring your co-workers. Bring your enemies. Bring those imperfect people that God has given you the opportunity to minister. Go with God this week. We love you, and we will see you back in this place next Sunday.